Well, I can tell you what, Chatsworth is a hive of activity right now at the Nelson Mandela Chatsworth Youth Centre. The community there is getting ready to celebrate a local hero, and that's none other than Kumi Naidu. Very good afternoon. Welcome to Newsbreak Talk. And yes, Kumi Naidu has been making waves, well, for a very long time. I think from the time he was 15 years old in the 1980s, when he was um, running between police and, and the security branch trying to fight for a right and just South Africa and that's where he cut his political teeth in Chatsworth fighting the shackles of apartheid he continued to do his work and conscientized himself early realizing the need to um, inspire change for his people he then went on to um, study politics at the University of Oxford and he managed to um, become one of the most celebrated activists in global history he's managed to lead various organizations and just recently he has been appointed as the Amnesty International Secretary General and of course Amnesty International is an advocacy group they do constant amounts of research always holding authorities accountable going beneath the surface finding out realities of situations and presenting it to the civil society and to global communities and this is in a bid to um, advance human rights. But I think the interesting thing about this, about this man who's now been a climate change activist, a human rights activist, uh, um, a, a, a warrior against poverty and social injustice, is that he's a Chatsworth boy who still maintains very close links to Chatsworth. And that is why he's right now in Chatsworth, getting ready to celebrate with the people from his community. And on that note, he managed to spare me some time. Very busy schedule for him, of course. He takes up his appointment on Wednesday, but he spared some time and he visited me in studio and we had a conversation which was very important for you to listen and for you to take from. So we managed to secure Kumi Naidu in studio yesterday and we pre-recorded this discussion with him. So we won't be taking calls and allowing you an opportunity to engage with him. I know you really wanted to, but Kumi could not fit that in his schedule. But nonetheless, he really wanted to leave a message for you. So he made the time yesterday today but he left with an invitation and he said that you should please join him at the chats with the youth center at two o'clock the nelson mandela chats with youth center at two o'clock he's going to be there and that's where he'd like to talk to you that's where he'd like to address you so we're going to go in conversation in a short while and play you that excerpt of our interview with kumi naidu kumi we thank you so much though for actually making the time i know you were here to um on personal commitments so busy time for you and I think uh, on that note we'd just like to welcome you back to Durban after a long time. How does it feel to be back home? Uh, no, it's always lovely to be back <laughs> in Durban. In fact, uh, the Mandela Youth Centre and the Revolution Motorcycle Club are organising an event uh, and so it will be a nice way to say thank you to yeah. folks yeah very I mean, special space that for you no yeah i mean most of what i've learned over the years uh, the skills i have and so on i always say that the biggest learning experience was my durban based activism of which chats with based activism was the biggest part of it mm. so i'm very grateful and so i even uh, on uh, the day before I start, I start on 15th of August. On the 14th, I'm coming back to Durban to go to my old school to speak at the assembly, yeah. uh, my high school, uh, to again say thank you to the folks that taught me so much and also to <coughs> excuse me, encourage young people to get involved now and not accept what older people say, which is yeah. young yeah. people are the leaders of tomorrow. Yeah. And I say to young people, given the realities of climate change, if you wait for tomorrow, there might not be a tomorrow for you to take a It might not be a planet to see the tomorrow yeah. on. You know, I mean, that's, that's a fascinating point, And I do want to talk about that. The actual um, I think encouragement of getting young people more involved in, the, in, you know, any type of social work. But before we do that, and I've not had the privilege of speaking to you about this, that time... In, I think it was, what was it, possibly the 1980s, 80s, I think? 1980, yeah. What was it like in Chatsworth? So, you know, for me personally, it was a very difficult time. 
my mom had just committed suicide. Uh, it was a very traumatic time, and during that time, there was a lot of uh, restlessness on the part of young people across the country who were standing up to protest against the inequality in education. In fact, you know, the slogans from 1980s were things like, you pay our teachers peanuts, no wonder they give us monkey education. Mm. Or the head of, there was a minister of Indian and colored education called Andreas Stain. And one of the placards used to say, there's a stain in our education system yeah. with the inverted commas on S-T-Y-N. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, to be honest, at 15 years old and I got involved, you didn't understand everything. But we were smart enough to know that at that age that there was a very huge disparity in terms of what government was spending on white kids versus black kids. Yeah. And in fact, the, one of the slogans at the front of the first march I took part in during the 1980 school boycotts was, we want equality. Mm. By the time the slogan got to the back of the march, the younger kids were chanting, we want a color TV. <laughs> <laughs> and I suppose at that time, you know, uh, we wanted equality and color TV equally. You know, uh, game first. You know, <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, you know, there was a politics behind that slogan in the sense that yeah, yeah. kids in white schools had color TVs, kids in black schools had no right. TVs, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so during that time, you know, it was a time of excitement in a way, fear as well. People were being bait and charged, tear gassed, arrested, uh, going on the run, all of that. And this was very new for us. You know, How old have, were you around on the stage? Uh, I was 15 in 1980, and that's when I got involved. And, and, you know, that's why when I look at young people today who are hesitant about stepping forward and taking leadership, I say, you know, uh, sometimes the best leaders are those that do not have too much of vested interests yeah. and uh, worrying about, you know, pensions and mm. insurance policies and yeah. other things. And there's one benefit of young, the condition of being young is that you are generally more willing to take higher levels of risk. Yeah. And what I saw with my generation of young people across the racial divide was that young people were willing to take much higher levels of risk yeah. to defeat apartheid yeah. Let's talk about some of the risks. generation. Let's talk about some of the risks you took. 15 years old, you realized this, you saw this, and you realized it was a great sense of inequality. I mean, you couldn't ignore it in a space like Chatsworth. Um, what was the first thing you did? What was the first risk you took to, to become at least a voice in that, in that struggle? Well, before the 1980s school boycotts, I was already involved in very community-oriented work in the community, which was related to, if you want, uh, helping Sheshire Homes for the Disabled and Lake Haven Youth Centre, uh, which was part of the Lake Haven Children's Home and so on. So we always had a very strong kind of community-oriented uh, approach to um, growing up, that, you know, we had a responsibility to help people who were less privileged yeah. than we were. But with the 1980 school boycotts, what that did was brought to our notice the fact that there was a person called Mandela that was in prison on Robben Island. We had not heard that before. Uh, we then understood that the education system and the weaknesses in the education system was not a crisis that existed in isolation, but the fact that there was an education crisis was the fact that there was a political crisis of inequality based on race. And so I think the benefit or the opportunity of being involved in the struggle made us realize that actually it wasn't simply about education, it was about the whole system being broken and that we needed to, while trying to get a better education system in the short term, we needed to also contribute towards ensuring that uh, racism and uh, racial exclusion that was legal hmm. uh, would never yeah. be allowed in the future. Yeah. Well, I want to spend a great deal of time and talk about that. And I think, you know, to look at it now in a, in a democratic era, where that stands currently in South Africa and also within a global context. But, you know, of course, that was the time your activism work started fighting apartheid. And I think, you know, we have an understanding as to how apartheid was effectively then dismantled. But during this time, you ended up in London and Oxford University studying politics there. I mean... 
that in itself just sounds absolutely surreal. Well, it was surreal actually because. Uh, so try to imagine that, right? Was it part right? of the plan? Uh, not really. I mean, um, that's a very important question, actually. Yeah. About what plan did we have? I mean, we had no plans, yeah. quite frankly. I mean, you know, the, our vocabulary was completely different. You know, things like the future, pension, uh, career path, yeah. all of these things didn't make sense because we, once you got involved in the struggle during those times, it was a question of life and death. Yeah. So you knew you could be arrested, you yeah. could end up in prison for a long time, you might have to go to exile, you might get killed. So we had very much a short-term way of of seeing ourselves and, and we knew that getting involved in the struggle meant that you could lose your life. And of course, on a regular basis, every other weekend, we were at funerals uh, burying comrades who had been murdered by the apartheid regime. Mm. So... Getting the Rhodes Scholarship was quite surreal because uh, there were some progressive lecturers at my university at UDW who actually said, you know what, you're going to get killed or thrown in prison. You should (laughs) rather get out of the country, get some education so you'll have something to be able to contribute. And I was not keen on it. You know, nobody wanted to leave the But then uh, my brother got arrested, Coven Naidu, and then a few of my close comrades like Lenny Naidu and uh, David Madurai, Richard Value and others. So once folks got arrested and we were getting information that they had enough information about us. Because you see, in those days, people like myself were involved in two kinds of activities. So the one end what you could call first-level activities, which is around rents, water, uh, community facilities, very, very immediate bread and butter issues. Mm -hmm. So we had residence associations and so on that were organized to fight for those issues. But those of us who were organizing those had always a very clear political perspective on it, that while we were organizing people to, like, oppose, like, say, 1983, very unfair and very high... Uh, water fines, right? Um, while we were doing that, we were focused on that to mobilize people because that was the issue that affected people. We had a very clear thing, well, this was a transitional issue to get yeah. people to s- recognize that some of these injustices and unfair things that were happening were happening because people didn't have yeah. political voice and didn't have the right to vote. Yeah, yeah. And, then and, and getting the Rhodes Scholarship, I mean, you know, I... Uh, even going for the interview, which was in Cape Town, like for me at that stage in terms of my life, it was quite interesting, you know. Making the shortlist was like winning the scholarship nice. because like, you know, suddenly I had a trip to Cape Town that yeah. put me up in a hotel. Uh, you know, all of these things were completely new to me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I think one of the reasons I was successful in getting the scholarship was I never really gave myself a chance yeah. because... Uh, I made choices about my education, which I don't regret, which was there were times where I prioritized activism rather than the goal of getting the highest grades, right? Because they were in contradiction. So, I mean, if you're doing a lot of activity and mobilizing people, you weren't going to be the top student. And so I never really saw myself as a very... uh, High probable candidate. Yeah. So I was very but relaxed. Gets you then to Oxford. So, so I was very relaxed, uh, went through it, and then suddenly it was offered within 24 hours of the interview. And I, to be honest, even at that stage, I didn't know whether I would even be able to take it up because yeah. I was facing a trial for a law that was called public violence, mm. which was related to a peaceful protest we had organized to protest the imposition of the state of emergency. And, you know, uh, and, and I was on trial f- for that. And, and if you were convicted of public violence, as it was called, uh, you almost automatically went to prison. They were like, yeah. uh, there was a, something known as the uh, common purpose principle, which is the government didn't have to prove that you threw a stone, for example. They had to just prove that you were there and had the same purposes others who might have thrown the stone. So yep. they didn't, the burden of proof was very low. And, and then the government said, if you get involved, convicted of public violence, it was mandatory that you had to spend prison time. So like in Cape Town, there were lots of teenagers who actually 
uh, were convicted under this law. Yeah. So we were quite convinced we wouldn't be equi- uh, convicted. But the problem for many of us then, we were involved in both, if you want, uh, legal resistance, like residents, associations, students, movements, yeah. and so on. But but we were also involved in the underground movement of the ANC and so on. So when the police were looking for you, you didn't know always whether they were looking for you <laughs> because they knew about your underground involvement or whether they knew about your, you know, uh, more legal resistance. Yeah, it could have been anything. Yeah. But I think, you know, and, and um, th- that really was, you know, the foundations and the formation of, I think, your um, your conscientization, one could say. Um, and, and subsequently, you know, having studied at, at, at Oxford and... Um, receiving the benefits of that education, I think quickly your focus shift to the planet. Um, well, you know, uh, I always say that I left to South Af- uh, I left South Africa at the age of 22 in 1987 as a South African, and I came back as an African mm. in the sense that when I was at Oxford, I had the privilege of meeting some of the most brilliant uh, students and activists from all o- across the continent, uh, one of the people that stands out f- for me was a guy called Tajuddin Abdul Rahim from uh, Nigeria who played a huge role in my life. Uh, he, for example, made me see very clearly that for Africa to move forward, uh, we must start with the recognition that individual African countries' boundaries as we have them today do not make economic, cultural, linguistic, environmental or any other sense because all these boundaries were drawn up at a conference in Berlin by European colonial powers, right? So, you know, our starting point is sort of questioning uh, whether, you know, um, we can actually advance the interests of every individual African countries without simultaneously looking at greater social, economic and political integration. I mean, the European Union as an experiment, you know, only got the energy that it did was because individual European countries realized that they would never be able to counterbalance the power of, say, the United States or China or even Brazil. So uh, for us on the African continent, we need to recognize the same thing. Because we have been victims of divide and rule and, uh, you know, different countries being played against each other and so on. And ever since Europe adopted the euro, I jokingly have been saying, you know, if Europe can have a euro, I don't see why Africa can't have an afro, which is, you know, one common currency, for example. Uh, And I see that even Cyril Ramaphosa now has come out in in support of that call because we need fresh ideas. We have been trying to improve the conditions and the human rights situation for the people on our continent for a very long time. And we seem to be making the mistake what Albert Einstein warned us against when he said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting to, to get different results. Yeah. And we need to do something yeah. different. You know, that's a fascinating point when you look at, you know, um, Africa within its, within its entirety. And I think, you know, you get... Southern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Northern Africa, often sometimes there's criticism that Africa is never really on the same page, that North Africa feels a little uh, different and governed by, a few, uh, governed by far more different rules and, and, and uh, cultural practices than Southern Africa, for example. Help me understand then how Africa is faring in that regard in terms of creating a oneness for the actual continent. Well, my optimism comes from what I hear from young people all across our continent, right? Young people get it. They also get the threat of climate change because they know that they are going to pay the price of the lack of adult political leadership to address the crisis now with the urgency that the situation calls for. And so even if we take young people in North Africa, for example, what I find is that they want to be part of Africa. You know, they, they, you know, the difficulty for North Africa is because they kind of swing both ways because they're part of the Arab League of States and yeah. they're part of the Arab world, but they're also part of Africa. So they're part of the OAU as well, or the uh, African Union, as we call it today. So I feel very strongly that uh, what we need is for pooling our resources together, 
improving intra-African trade. And listen, there are certain things that are beyond the control of African political leaders, like, say, for example, trying to get the best and fair global trading system. Now, we have said to our leaders often that we will stand shoulder to shoulder with you and fight at the global level for those. But there are certain things that are within your domain of control, and we're going to fight you if you don't deliver that. Mm. Because you can't blame colonialism and history and so on for the fact that we've got violence against women. Yeah. Right? That is within the domain of control of our leaders. If they cared enough, if they were committed enough, they could do much more to ensure that the scourge of violence against women, not only in South Africa but across this continent, can be reduced and hopefully eliminated. Um, so what we need is a different sense of political commitment because, you know, uh, one of the things that we accept too easily in the world is the high levels of inequality that exists, you know. Yeah. And I just would uh, remind your listeners of a wisdom from Martin Luther King when he once said, my friends, as I get to the end of my speech, I want to note in the field of psychology, there's a very dominant term called maladjusted. Now, all of us want to be well-adjusted and not suffer from schizophrenia or other mental problems. But my friends, I say there are certain things in our world that are so unjust and immoral that good, decent people should refuse to be well-adjusted. And then he goes on to say, I never intend to adjust myself to religious bigotry. I never intend to adjust myself to racial discrimination. And importantly, he says... I never intend to adjust myself to economic conditions that will take necessities from the many to give luxuries to the few yeah. when millions of God's children are smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in an affluent society. Yes, it's half past one here on Newsbreak Talk today, a special edition of the program In Conversation, a world exclusive there. We've got Kumi Naidu talking to Newsbreak exclusively just before he takes up the position of Secretary General of Amnesty International, a global rights advocacy research think tank civil society organization that's at the forefront of uncovering and and um, presenting human rights atrocities and violations globally. He's going to head that up and he starts on Wednesday and he made time exclusively for Newsbreak to talk to us about this. But he also, and I will remind you of this, he left us with the invitation that you should please make your way down to the Chatsworth Youth Center, the Nelson Mandela Chatsworth Youth Center in Chatsworth, should you wish to meet and mingle with him that's where he's celebrating with the community. You can make your way down there now. That event starts at 2 o'clock. It's Newsbreak Talk today, and we're in conversation with Kumi Naidu. When we come back, we talk to Kumi, who, of course, served as um, the executive director of Greenpeace and World Environmental Organization. Of course, he was the chair of the Global Call for Climate Action. He's the founding chair of the Global Call to Action Against Poverty, and he was even the secretary general and CEO of Civicus. So very, very entrenched in the fight to save the planet. When we come back, we talk to Kumi Naidu about his thoughts on saving the planet, or rather, as he puts it, on um, trying to offset the impact of climate change. Climate change, it's something that we've, we've really spent a great deal of time as a nation talking about, I think as a global nation talking about, um, you look at various conferences happening, you look at various awareness drives taking place. Um, I want to know from you, is it, is, is it still given as much attention as it needs, the issue of trying to protect the planet of governments needing to um, commit more to the eradication, eradication of climate change? We are certainly not doing enough. Yeah. We are certainly not showing the kind of urgency that we need to. Some countries are doing good. Uh, sadly, we have an absurdity of a U.S. president in the form of Donald, Donald Trump right now who has pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, the one thing that I think needs to be very clearly put to bed, the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change is not a struggle to save the planet. Okay, let me let me just say I, I surprise people sometimes when I say actually the climate the the planet is just fine, mm. right? Because think about it, right? If we continue our addiction to oil, coal, gas, and other forms of dirty energy and dirty economic practice, we warm up the planet to a point where we reduce our water sources, we reduce our soil, uh, uh, arable soil. 
all of these things then mean that we have a society that is actually dying, right? So the end result would be, if we continue on this path, of uh, if we don't try to get off oil, coal, and gas and go to clean, renewable energy, for example, the end result would be, we will be gone as humanity. But the truth is, once humanity becomes extinct, the planet will still be here, yeah. right? It might be brewed, battered, and and, 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 and damaged by humanity's crimes on it. But the truth is, once you, human beings become extinct, mm. the oceans will recover, the yeah. forests will grow back, and so on. So that's why I say to people, don't worry about the planet. Understand the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change is essentially a struggle of whether humanity can fashion a way to coexist with nature in a mutually interdependent relationship for centuries and centuries to come. Put differently, the struggle to avert catastrophic climate change is nothing more and nothing less than protecting our children and their children's futures. And when you put it that way, especially, then I think it's very clear to say that our leaders are in denial. They are playing political poker with the future of our children. Uh, they see all the signs that you and I see, but they are in denial about the changes that we need to make and partly because too many of our leaders are in the pockets of oil, coal and gas yeah. companies and other polluting industries. Well, Donald Trump says that he would pull out of the Paris Agreement because it goes against the workers' rights of his people. So, you know, it, it, it's that rhetoric almost. It's all, almost a, a political game of, of, of speaking what my electorate wants to hear to well, keep them coming back home. Well, just to be clear... Uh, I've done a lot of work in the United States over the last 20 years, especially on pushing the climate uh, debate. And I am very, very clear right now that more than 65% of the American people are disaffected with the position of Trump on climate. We have at least... 65% of the people who accept climate change is real, want action on it, and so on. And bear in mind, we got to that point with an extremely hostile uh, media in the U.S., which was largely incompetent to actually talk about climate change in a way that was accessible and made the viewers understand, and so on. So there is no question in my mind that we are playing catch-up, that our leaders are being irresponsible, and let's be blunt about it. I can take you country by country, can tell you exactly what's happening with energy policy, for example. And I'll tell you at the end of the day, the reason many of our political leaders are not willing to act as fast as they need to is because they are in the pockets of the very people who run those fossil fuel companies. Uh, and by fossil fuel companies, I'm meaning oil, coal and gas companies. Uh, and we've known for decades and decades that... It was just a matter of us applying ourselves that we could uh, meet our energy needs through solar, wind, biomass, and other forms of clean energy. But those, en those forms of energy don't allow the companies to make the kinds of huge yeah. profits yeah. that the current energy system allows them to make. You know, Because nobody's going to get an exclusive license for the sun or for the wind. Yeah. Whereas you can get an exclusive license for a coal field or a gas field and so on. Mm. You know, let's shift that then to, uh, I think, and that's specifically something we've done, we've been trying to do quite um, vociferously here on, on this particular platform. And that's at the top government level. And, you know, it, it takes a great deal of pressure, a great deal of advocacy to to implement some sort of change there but i think changing the mindset of the person on the ground who you know lives coexists with the earth on a daily basis we've been doing that are you confident or happy about the way um the global society is dealing with the earth now and understanding the challenges that the earth faces sadly i have to say i'm not happy yeah. I, I i think we're still in uh, denial about how serious the problem is we're still too slow it's still too little too late and i often describe our response to the crises around climate but also around inequality and other issues that humanity is facing the way i like to present it uh, you know if you want an image it's like rearranging the deck chairs in the titanic while humanity is sinking 
you know, I mean, what's the point rearranging mm. the deck chairs in the Titanic? The Titanic is sinking, yeah. right? And so a lot of what we do sometimes, it's treating the symptoms of the problem rather than treating the root cause of the problem. So, so for example, like say with regard to the environmental challenges generally and climate specifically, so for example, people say, oh, you should recycle, you know, as a response. Now, absolutely, recycling is a good thing. But what I say is, Recycling is a very good place to start your activism. It's a very horrible place to stop your activism. Mm. You know what I mean? Recycling on its own is not going to get us yeah. where we need yeah. to. We need to change the ownership structure of energy companies, uh, push them to deliver uh, uh, on, on uh, clean energy and so on. And those things go beyond individual personalized action which people can take. And I'm not saying people shouldn't. People should take those, but they should not think just because I now make sure that I don't use dirty energy, I don't use plastic, I live a good life, all of which is good that people do, but people shouldn't del delude themselves by just taking individual action and sorting out their own personal carbon footprint. Yeah. Good as it is, it's not going to get the changes that yeah. we need to align our behavior with what the science is saying yeah. we need to do. You, know, you mentioned briefly there about... Uh, President Sultan being the step in the correct direction for South Africa, and uh, just recently, you know, he was nudged on his uh, nuclear deal with Vladimir Putin, and uh, I think the response is quite uh, lukewarm, meaning he's not going to resume those talks. We understand. Um, how do you perceive that? Well, the nuclear deal uh, was something that we should never even have wasted yeah. time on. It shouldn't have been something that we'd have wasted so much of money on, right? Uh, it was something that was too expensive, That and, and quite frankly, we didn't need. It's a very old way of thinking about energy grids and energy systems, uh, where you think about it solely through centralized big grids. Uh, that's an old way of thinking, and I, I'm pretty certain that the nuclear deal is dead forever, yeah. But I understand that Ramaphosa said to Putin when Putin was here for BRICS that we can't afford it now, but we'll look at it in the future. So, Mr. Ramaphosa, I would say to you very humbly, you should not waste time worrying about that. You should be investing in our young people to ensure that our young people are the most cutting-edge renewable energy engineers and entrepreneurs, that they uh, are registering patents in innovations in energy efficiency and so on that we can export to the rest of the world. If we sit there and dither and continue to look at old solutions like nuclear and so on, what we will find is that Africa will end up again on the receiving, red, uh, receiving end of technologies that are developed elsewhere and therefore it will cost us far too much. So if President Ramaphosa wants to be an inspirational leader, he needs to educate himself about the energy system and the options, which I believe he needs to do some work on. Yeah. Uh, and then he needs to act on it. And I can tell you quite clearly, to hang on to oil, coal and gas and nuclear is old thinking. In conversation today with Kumi Naidu, he's been appointed as the Secretary General of Amnesty International. He takes up that position um, on Wednesday and he made time for Newsbreak in this exclusive conversation to talk to you about some of the pressing issues he'd like to take forward at that international level. Well, we pressed him on some more issues and we even asked him about his thoughts on Women's Month, the significant time that he visits Durban and he gave us uh, some um, information and his understanding of how this need, this conversation needs to be had. But I want to remind you that he's also invited you to join him at the Chats with Youth Centre right now. At two o'clock is when um, there's going to be a bit of an integration and a felicitation taking place there. So he'd love to converse with you there. Let's just talk about present day and let's talk about Amnesty International because it's such a, a reputable organisation and it's, it's often, um, I think, we journalists often look in awe at the work produced by Amnesty International to take forward these narratives and these conversations. Um, and firstly, you know, how do you feel knowing that you're going to be representing this organization? Well, to be honest with you, I'm like quite uh, nervous. 
uh, even though I've done similar roles before, I used to be the head of Greenpeace, as you know, uh, which was a similar organization focused primarily on climate and environment. Uh, I am daunted, but also deeply humbled and excited by the opportunity to be able to contribute to one of the best campaigning organizations that exists in the world, one of the oldest, and which is one of the strongest in the human rights field. So I find it very, very humbling to have this opportunity. But I would be lying to say to you that given the state of the world right now, that I'm not anxious about how easy it is going to be to change the suicidal trajectory that humanity is on uh, in the sense of, you know, on climate, on, 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 on deepening inequality and so on, and on growing violence as well. So I'm very much of the view right now that our, uh, organizations like Amnesty are critically important for us to actually uh, balance the power of governments and corporations. I, to be honest with you, after Greenpeace of six years of 24-7 spinning around the world from one place to the other non-stop, I didn't think I would take on another global responsibility. But when people approach me, I was persuaded by the fact that things are getting so bad in so many places in the world. That's precisely the question I want, I want to ask you. I mean, you know, the reports that come through, whether it's the sale of Yazidi women, whether it's the persecution of the Rohingya Muslim, whether it's the day-to-day -day treat, uh, you know, what we understand to be the treatment of Palestinian people, it's cruel. Yeah. Why is it getting so cruel? Where is that, where is that evil being created from? Well, you know, this is not a very comfortable thing to say but I and others have been saying it for some time now that as resources on the planet shrink as we have less water for human consumption as well as for agriculture as we have less land because of desertification brought about by climate change and other environmental neglect uh, once basic resources that humanity needs to survive, you know, water, food, shelter, and so on. Once those start getting constrained, you know, water, for example, you know, is one of the most precious resources on the planet. You know, for years now, people like myself have been saying future wars will not be fought about oil, will be fought about water, and we're seeing it happening already, right? So within that context of shrinking resources, if you think humanity is, or human beings are lousy to each other at the moment, then when resources get less and less, water and food in particular, then that's what we are seeing at the moment, I think. That the shrinking of resources is also bringing out a more um, sort of raw kind of survival instinct at all costs and you know so it's not about we must survive as a community or we must survive as a people but it will eventually get to a point which is what we are seeing and that's what we must reverse is a culture of where you know everybody for themselves and and, and and hopefully God will take But I think more chilling that point becomes is the fact that it's so institutionalized because uh, oftentimes governments either turn a blind eye, sometimes they're accused of, you know, um, perpetuating the kind of violence and the kind of um, human rights violations that we're seeing. So that becomes scary, almost questions what is the role of a government to perpetuate this kind of damage against mankind or to safeguard a particular type of interest. I, I think, you know, the performance of many, many governments around the world at the moment leaves much, you know, to be desired. You know, I mean, there's overall, you ask people, people have lost faith in governments. I mean, our country, is a, our country is a very good example, right? I mean, we had one of the most active civil societies during the anti-apartheid struggle and so on. And right now, okay, thank God for that because eventually when people needed to stop the corruption that was being pushed by the previous ANC leadership, 
we could mobilize that history of resistance and so on. But if you think about it, it took us far too long to stop the rot of the Guptas and others and so on, right? And and now when we hear the scale of the theft that was engaged in, when so many of our people don't have basics of water and education and so on, it's a, it's, it's criminal. So what do you do then now at Amnesty International in terms of... of Highlighting this, showing this, and, 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 and I think bringing, bringing a new dimension to that conversation that the world needs to know about. Well, a couple of new things, right? One is, and another of it is brand new. Yeah. These are ideas that have been there, but we've not really acted on it. So firstly, I would say is that as Amnesty recognizes, however big and strong and powerful it might be, we can only win if we work in partnership and alliance with others who, who have common interests, and by this I mean trade unions, religious organizations, NGOs, and so on. The second thing we need to do is we need to look at what history teaches us about how change happens. And if history teaches us one thing, it is only when decent men and women stand up and say enough is enough and no more, we prepare to put our lives on the line, we prepare to go to prison if necessary, and so on. It's only then that you can change. And so one of the things Amnesty will be doing or seeking, trying to do is to intensify peaceful civil disobedience and resistance to human rights violations that are happening on an increasing basis across the world. The third thing is we want to follow the money a bit more because we sometimes underestimate why we are able or not able to push for the changes that we need. So, like, for example, on climate, I can tell you that we don't have time right now to campaign against 20,000 organizations, business organizations or more, whose economic activity is climate negative, right? Because we just don't have time. Time, you know, the, the thing about climate change is there's a clock that's ticking and we have five minutes to midnight. However, how we need to be more strategic is rather than campaigning against 20,000 plus individual businesses, if you follow the money, we'll find there's about 50 financial institutions that gives loans to these 50,000 companies. That So we need to go after the money and we need to convince those banks and other lending institutions that lend to economic projects that violate human rights, that drives us closer to climate disaster and so on, to stop the flow of capital at source. So there's some new things we need to do. Uh, the other thing I would say all, is also that, you know, while the current uh, business community globally has lots of deficits in terms of legitimacy and ideas and so on, I do not believe that we can move forward without having open, uh, robust conversations with leaders in those sectors, right? Because I want to believe that the CEOs of the biggest companies, our parents and grandparents, they don't want to hand over to their children a life where there is no water and food and uh, and so on. Yeah. So we have to appeal to the humanity of those that have uh, leadership positions in the business community. So part of what I will be doing is pushing civil disobedience on the one end, you know, if you want the more militant approach, if you want. But at the same time, I'll be saying dialogue with the people that we disagree. I do not believe we're going to move forward without dialogue with people that we disagree with. Uh, we, in the activist community, also have got far too used and lazy of hanging out with people that think like ourselves and, and creating an echo chamber that you delude yourself while everybody thinks the way that we do. No, the fact that Donald Trump was elected in the United States tells you that what looks on the surface about where people might be at, when you dig deeper, you can find all sorts of different things happening. And it's only because of a high level of dysfunctionality and disunity in the United States that you end up with a president like Donald Trump. Uh, and we can look closer home for some other good examples yeah. too. We come at a significant time in South Africa. I think uh, the focus being on on uh, women women's rights issues. And I think I had a very interesting conversation with um, 
with a colleague of mine, and I know you said you're an eternal optimist, but this is almost a pessimist question. Um, my friend goes as far as saying, I don't think we should be celebrating Women's Day anymore in South Africa, not when the constant narrative of the circumstance against the, the female is so bad. I have a lot of sympathy with that perspective. Uh, I think that uh, I was looking at all the Women's Day activities yesterday. Um, there was a funeral of the Grahamstown uh, young woman who was murdered by a boyfriend, raped, sorry, who was raped by a boyfriend and then she took her life, Salani. Um, you know, it just devastates, you know, like especially if you're a parent and if you have uh, uh, children and especially if you have girl children, you know, you just think, I mean, this is my daughter, this is happening to you. And every time I hear a story of, so, so I think it's pathetic that uh, just on this month we wake up and try and do a few things. Uh, I think um, what is needed is that every day needs to be Women's Day, given the triple oppression that women experience historically in our country. When I say triple up, uh, it means that on the basis of their color, uh, their class as uh, as as well as their gender of course, you know, mm. three levels of discrimination yeah. and yes, there have been some amazing women in our history and in our present period who are doing amazing things uh, but when I look at our politics, I see our politics still so rooted in masculine culture and in a male approach to things which has never worked and the reality is that there are more women than men in the world and unless our political institutions, our financial and economic institutions and even our civil society institutions start reflecting that equality of men and women in leadership, we all as men should be ashamed yeah. that we are not moving fast enough to address a, one of the worst legacies of injustice. In how, the world, do you, how, do you set, how do you set the agenda? You know, often I think a, a, a very tangible approach coming through now is for men to take control of the, um, of the gender issue, of uh, stopping fellow men in, in their tracks. You know, if you're, at the, if you're at a pub, if you're at the bra and somebody says something sexist, well, you as a man call it out. Um, but 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 you know, my question is where do you start that agenda because if you look at it uh, and you pointed out the political s sector of, of of South Africa I mean we still don't have a, a strong female representation in governance and what role then should South Africa be playing to set that message from the top level well you know firstly you know uh, one important role that South Africa plays globally is that the head of UN Women, the UN institution that leads the fight, is uh, a South African, Pumzile Maslamo Nuka. And Pumzile has been doing a great job there, and I've had occasion to serve on an advisory board and so on over the years. Um, I think that that's an important role, that we should support the global fight. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, the best contribution South Africa can make to the global fight on gender inequality is to make sure that we sort out the issues of gender-based violence as well as gender inequality. If we were to sort that out and set an example for the world, then I think that's the best contribution we can make, uh, rather than always thinking that just joining global initiatives and so on. I'm not saying that's not important, they're important, but uh, but at the end of the day, the most important thing is that we need to re recognize that South Africa is one of the highest levels of violence against women, that South Africa is one of the highest levels of violence against children, that South Africa is one of the highest levels of gender-based violence. And given all of this, uh, we should all feel ashamed. And I do think that men must stand up 
and realize that we are either part of the problem or we're part of the solution and staying silent in the face of gender-based violence is a option that men are making to be part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Mm. I think, Kumi, as you leave us, I mean, you go um, to spend some time with Chatsworth and there's going to be a great, uh, I think, uh, felicitation there. You know, it, it, it talks about your constant advocacy of wanting to get society active in what they want. So talk to me about how significant, you know, this space is and this time is to mobilize residents of Durban to do that. Well, I am deeply proud to be somebody who grew up in Durban. Uh, I learned a lot from communities all across Durban. Uh, I have always felt that if you forget where you've come from, you're unlikely to be able to do anything good in the world. So understanding where you come from and, and, and with all its contradictions and challenges and problems, never sort of distancing yourself from it. And so me, in all the work that I've done, even after I was working globally in all, Durban and Chatsworth was always a, a center for my validation, you know, um, and so on. And I'm very pleased that some of my old comrades are organizing a small jol in, uh, in, in, uh, at the Nelson Mandela Youth Center tomorrow at 2 o'clock. People are welcome to come. Uh, uh, because it is, it is those memories when I'm sitting alone at the airport or if I'm ended up in a foreign jail or if I'm, you know, whatever tragedies and challenges that might lie ahead of me. It's that looking back at people where you grew up still validating and encouraging you, I think it's a huge blessing to have. I've always had people ever since I was 15 who encouraged me to stand up for that which is right and I hope that the generation of young people in South Africa and Africa and in the world today will also have the kinds of people that I had growing up who said it is much better to try and fail than fail to try and you shouldn't accept that the world we live in is the best that humanity can create for itself because if you accept that this is the best then you don't have any ambition for creating that just and fair and equal and uh, united society that we all hunger for. Kumi, thank you so much for sparing the time. Thank and I uh, wish you all the best with the new venture at Amnesty International. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to keeping track of everything you have Thanks, to do. Thanks, and I hope I'll get a chance to come back well after I start. Yeah, we'll hold you to that. Okay. So that conversation with Kumi Naidu ended there. Of course, he takes up Amnesty International on Wednesday and he made the time to talk to you but he's also waiting for you now the chats with youth center make your way there and that's where you get to have the conversation the broadcast came your way courtesy of the team executive producer Selma Patel and Tashlin Naidu back between one and two tomorrow from me Tare Shea have an awesome day